This is The Think Tank with Dr. Michael Neal, talking about the major political, economic, and social issues of the week. The Think Tank, KTAR News on 92.3 FM and KTAR.com. Well, there's going to be an election this year, a general election, and supposedly the voters get to pick the candidates. But we've gone through a process where some other people, uh, a independent redistricting commission, gets to decide how the lines are drawn. And in effect, uh, it's uh, politicians or or people who really aren't supposed to be politicians in the redistricting commission, though I don't know, unless you had a political inclination, I don't know why you'd want to serve on the a commission like that. But uh, they've gone through a process and they've redrawn the lines. And uh, let me set the stage for this just a little bit. Uh, We have a legislature that is uh, just barely Republican. There is a and it's been Republican for decades, but they have a one vote majority in the House, a one vote majority in the Senate, which means that they can get anything through either body. And there's, of course, a Republican governor as long as they do not have a single defection in their ranks. And uh, uh, our guest here is Jeremy Duda. He watched the uh, redistricting process probably more faithfully than anybody who wasn't uh, themselves a commissioner. Uh, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. And uh, I want to start out, before we get into redistricting, which will impact the districts that people vote on in the 22, which will have an impact in 23, we've had a major change in the legislature, A extraordinary number of legislators, 13, have been replaced to due to variety of circumstances, a number of Democrats took jobs in the Biden administration. A number of Republicans are running for other offices. And the question to you is that given this hair trigger Republican majority, and in fact, that that majority was so slight that in the last legislative session, there were a number of bills that leadership wanted to get through and in each case, there was one or more defections, and they got a lot of the stuff they wanted through only by throwing it into the budget bill, which the uh, Supreme Court ultimately threw out because we have a provision in the Arizona Constitution that says every bill shall be about a single subject. In other words, you can't do exactly what they did, even though it's been done for years. The the, not, qu- not quite as much as they did it last year. Yeah, yes, true. Yeah, but it's not. A, it's not been an unknown. But maybe maybe that was what pushed them over. That the the, uh, the extent of it got a grievous, or somebody filed a case at a at a particular moment. But uh, so my question to you: thirteen new members. What do we know about these folks in terms of? the likelihood that either one of two things would happen, that there are any signs that any of the new Republicans might be inclined to bolt on an issue or two, or on the Democratic side, the the Republican unanimity was essential only because the Democrats were completely unified and they had no defections in their ranks. On the other hand, is there, does it look like there's any Democrat who's a potential defector 
creating a little bit of a cushion for Republicans? Uh, well, we really don't know yet. I mean, most of these folks, I mean, they all got appointed during the off session, you know, in between the end of the last session and the start of this one. In fact, the most recent one, uh, Teresa Hatatli from uh, Northern Arizona, appointed literally the morning of the uh, of, uh, opening day. So we don't know much about the ideological inclinations or lean of a lot of these folks. My guess is that we are probably not going to get many surprises out of them. I mean, you know, with a 16-14 Senate and a 31-21 House, it takes a lot of guts to really to be the one Republican who kills, you know, your party's bills on a party line vote. Or if one Republican does defect and there's one or two in each chamber who might to be the Democrat who saves those Republican bills. I but mean, there were such people in the last session. There were such people. No, no, no freshmen, I don't believe. Yeah. Mostly you know, veterans who've been there for a long time, very comfortable in their positions. Mm-hmm. Uh, Paul Boyer, a Republican who is, in the Senate. I think, leaving. Who so, is, who is so now leaving because his, uh, his, his a tendency to vote against his party on – some stuff that the most of them really want has uh, basically left him untenable in his reelection, so he's not even running now. But you know, so he was likely to kill some stuff in the Senate. And, you know, he's definitely signaled that he's going to continue being a uh, quote troublemaker, as uh, I think Senate President Karen Fan referred to him. You know, if you're if you're going to be the one Democrat who uh, saves the bills that he votes down, that he uh, kills in the Senate, uh, that's going to take. Uh, that's probably going to doom you in your own reelection. If so. you break ranks on either yeah, side, you're going to you're going to incur exactly. some enmity. But I'm, my guess is that most of these uh, 13 folks, and some of them are former House reps who got uh, appointed to fill Senate vacancies, and then we know those folks, and you know, those are, they're mm-hmm. all on both sides, I think, probably all ideologically reliable for their parties. I would not expect to see a lot of defections among these new folks, although who knows? We don't know. Some of them we know pretty much nothing about, so some of them could surprise us, but my guess is probably not. We don't, we don't know this much about them. In order to get appointed, you had to be vetted by the county uh, supervisors in your home county. Well, more importantly, then, you have to be vetted by the precinct committeemen in yeah. your district, and these are the uh, kind of voting members of a party's legislative mm-hmm. district organization, usually the uh, most ideologically strident in, uh, um, among their party, and they choose three finalists for uh, these vacancies, and then the Board of Supervisors selects one from among those three. So you kind of have to pass the, whatever purity tests the uh, precinct committeemen are going to put you through in order to get that far. So if somebody bolts, it's probably going to be a surprise. Yeah, exactly. And I think the, the, the folks who nominated them will probably be unhappy about that if that happens. So uh, are you looking for any particular surprises in this? Led you listen to the guy. We just have a minute or two, then we're going to break and then go to redistricting. But uh, in terms of the governor's big proposals, do you th- see anything there that uh, that he, that he might have difficulty? I, my my big the one big surprise to me was the water proposal. Um, that I think. We'll have to see what the details are, and we'll see yeah. that tomorrow when Governor Ducey releases his executive budget plan. The one thing where that might have some issues is just the gargantuan price tag on it. He's talking a billion dollars. Mm-hmm. It's unclear really whether that's going to be all at once or kind of phased in over a few years. Probably all at once because we've a, got the money right now. He's got, we got the money right now. He's not going to be here next year. Um, you know, I spoke with uh, Representative Regina Cobb, Republican from Kingman, who chairs the House Appropriations Committee. And uh, she, after the speech, she told me she liked a lot of what she heard, but she just wants to see how the numbers shake out, whether the governor is looking at the same kind of budget surplus numbers as her in terms of uh, – you know, one point seven billion. I think she said in uh, one time fund, one time surplus, and then about seven hundred million in uh, ongoing yeah. surplus. So she expects that billion dollars on water to come out of the one time and probably just go into some, some kind of like escrow account or something like that. So depending if the number if the numbers are there, you know, 
do this. Just to be clear, in case people don't know that, what he's proposing is a billion dollars to build a desalin and, and transport desalinized water for Mexico. That is uh, that was the one thing you mentioned specifically. There could be other things in the proposal. Once again, you know, he was state of the state speech is generally pretty vague on a lot of the details, and then we get yeah. those on the, the Friday following when the, but, the but, budget plan comes out. But and you wonder whether he, I, you hope that he talked to people in Mexico about this as well. Yeah, this would require obviously you know international compacts and agreements, yeah. stuff like that. In one sense, though, it strikes me is it's the easy solution because the alternative is to tell a bunch of farmers they can't have all the water they've been getting. That just because it or isn't there. Tell the farmers they can't have the water, or tell the home builders they can't build new homes. Yes. Uh, also, yeah. Long-term home sure. builders, you, you can deal with it. But in terms of the immediate crisis and Lake Mead going below a level where you can generate power, that has to be this year. Sure. And the home builders, they're, they're absolutely on the table for future options. But, uh, you know, to save water right now, we're looking at farmers. And that's, uh, well, we're probably looking at them anyway because the desalinization plant, even if built, doesn't come online for a while. I would, Im- I would so. imagine that takes a while to build. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Sounds like we'll a major be, piece of infrastructure. We'll be back in, in a minute. We'll talk uh, the nitty-gritty of redistricting, and we'll start with our Arizona legislature, which uh, has been about a 16-14 legislature. We'll see what it looks like after the redistricting when we return with Jeremy Duda in, in a moment back in the think tank. The Think Tank, KTAR News on 92.3 FM and KTAR.com. We're back with Jeremy Duda of the Arizona Mirror, who watched the redistricting process probably about as closely as any outside observer. Welcome back. Um, The legislature, 30 districts. We redrew them into 30 districts. Uh, what What does it look like to you? First of all, overall, big picture is it uh, uh, we start out a little bit of a Republican lean here? The Republicans uh, not only are six, roughly sixteen fourteen now, they are uh, they have held both houses for decades. Um, I think it's been twenty twenty five years since we had a tie in either district. Now this well, time is got Republicans haven't lost the House since uh, the sixties. Yeah, yeah. And and there was a there was a Senate tie for a while. Sure, there are a couple 20. of times since then that they but, took but, the Senate, but, but it's very rare uh, and and brief. So, uh, do we see any change in that, or or are the Republicans even more solid as a result? Not of trends. I think we'd both agree that as of this moment, this looks like a very Republican year. But setting that aside, uh, just looking at the districts themselves, comparing them to the current district. Would you say that the Republicans are better off with the new districts than the current ones? You know, it's hard to say. You know, after, this year, of course, everyone's kind of looking at the Democrats get wiped out because it's going to be, by all accounts, a big Republican year. So this year won't tell us a lot about those new maps. Um, down the road, further later on in the decade, um, in the right year for the Democrats, I could see there's a chance, based on how these districts trend, that that you know you could see Democrats take control of one or both chambers. I mean, combined with kind of the way we've seen the state kind of trending a little mm-hmm. bit more towards the Democrats in general after, you know, decades of, you know, solid Republican voting. But um, kind of the simplest breakdown I could give of kind of how the new districts look is 13 safe Republican districts, 12 safe Democratic districts, and five that could be considered competitive, maybe four. Or one, one of those kind of leans a little more towards the Republicans my than count the is, others. My count is only one difference from yours that yeah. I count it uh, 14, 12, and 4. 
Yeah, you know, four, you know, 14, 12, and 4, or 13, 12, and 5, depending on how you look at it. Mm-hmm. Um, of those five competitive districts, four lean toward the Republicans, one a little more than the others, and one lean towards the Democrats. Mm-hmm. So for this year, certainly that's not going to be good for the Democrats. It'll be very good for the Republicans, and I'm sure that they're likely to kind of build, expand those uh, very narrow majorities mm-hmm. they have in both chambers right now. Let's talk about the four or four and a half districts that are uh, that are at all competitive. Uh, the number one that jumps out in my mind, it's New District 13, but basically it's Chandler. Sure, yeah, Chandler and um, I think maybe a little bit of Gilbert and, and, and or Ahwatukee. But yeah, that's, um, it's a, you know, kind of replaces the current District 17, which is became slightly competitive, I think very unexpectedly mm-hmm. for most people. Like over the course of the decade, you know, 10 years ago, I watched the redistricting commission very closely then as well. If you would have told me that that district would ever elect a Democrat to the legislature, I probably would have laughed. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, in 2018 and 2020, it did elect a Democrat to Jennifer Pollack to to one of the two. The question is, how much of that is her persona? Because I don't think they've elected any other Democrat, have they? No, they haven't. That was that was probably that was you know I think probably the most expensive legislative race last year, mm-hmm. and the Democrats spent I think over a million dollars trying to get uh, the Democratic Senate candidate elected there. Um, I think that's the only district that uh, where there's a, they voted differently on uh, state Senate and president, where a, a Republican won, J.D. Mesnard had won re-election to the Senate, mm-hmm. but the district voted for Biden over Trump. And and that is not unreasonable in terms of what happened statewide. Sure. That that is where Joe Biden won Arizona, suburban, upscale, educated, and often Republican women who couldn't stomach Donald Trump went for Joe Biden, but voted pretty much a, a straight Republican ticket thereafter. Sure. Folks who are inclined to vote Republican and did so down ballot, but voted for Trump and Mark Kelly or for Biden and Mark Kelly at the top of the ticket. Uh also, they're they're Republicans because they've got some money. They're they're not big spenders, but they're not buying the sort of the whole Trump cultural thing. Well, you said, but you, and you've also seen, I think, like I was saying, a little bit of a shift in that district, mm-hmm. kind of demographically. And I think a lot of people attribute that to Intel. That's where they are, and that they keep mm-hmm. expanding, and so they keep bringing in kind of high wage, uh, high educate, highly educated workers who kind of tend to you know trend a little bit more towards the Democrats. And that's kind so of, the Lodmer engineer is pretty conservative <laughs> as, as fields go amongst educated um, people there. I'll take your word for it. Yeah, but, um, uh, but so this looks like the most competitive legislative mm-hmm. district on the map right now. Mm-hmm. West Mace is another interesting one. Sure, yeah. And that's the only one of the competitive districts that, uh, by the metrics, the commission used uh, leans towards the Democrats. And interestingly enough, the only incumbent there is a Republican senator, Tyler Pace. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the two House seats, are, I, don't, I don't believe there is uh, any incumbents there. So that'll be, that'll be a big battleground And it, and it is, interestingly, it's kind of the old Russell Pierce district, too. A lot of it, yeah. I mean, somewhat, I was, I was, I was actually comparing them a couple of weeks ago. And, you know, still, it was still somewhat different. But, yeah, a lot of that same area, you know, West Mesa, which I think think has kind of trended a little better for the Democrats than it used to be. It, it had the old district had, uh, you know, it was Russell Pierce, just in case anybody missed the reference, was the father of SB 1070, the purveyor of a whole range of anti-immigration uh, legislation, was defeated in a recall election. We did a show about that here a couple of weeks ago. Um, but the district, while it was clearly overall Republican, had about almost 30 percent Hispanic voters. They got outvoted. They were in the minority, but they were an element uh, there. And uh, 
uh, probably some evolution. And of course, then none of these districts are not exactly the same. It's you kind of look at the map. And yeah, it's some, some some districts have uh, some of the current districts or previous districts have kind of analogs on the new map. Some are just completely different. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and when you move some of those lines a mile in one direction. Um, it, the district may look very similar but uh, on the map, but can be really quite different. Sure, in, den- in densely populated urban areas. And we saw a lot of fights at the commission mm-hmm. over, you know, moving one line you know, a mile or two in one direction or the other and how much that really did change the kind of political demographic of these districts. I got two other districts that are kind of interesting. Uh, two in North Phoenix, four in Paradise Valley, kind of similar, even more upscale. Sure, sure. Leaning Republican, right? Yeah, both both competitive, both leaning Republican. Uh, four is kind of, you know, that, that is kind of this is kind of the, the successor to the district that's existed for decades, which is kind of the at least for most of the past you know couple of decades has been a Republican leaning but competitive area, highly educated Paradise Valley. They built more area, kind of north central Phoenix area, and so it, it, wasn't this the one that, where they had the flip in the Senate? That was. Yeah. That was where uh, Christine Marsh defeated uh, Kate Brophy-McGee, yeah. and the Democrats have been trying to flip that seat for many years. And currently hold all three seats. Currently hold all three seats. Traditionally, that had been the competitive district where the Democrats had always kind of kept one foothold with one of the, t- with one of the two House mm-hmm. seats, usually running a relatively moderate uh, Democrat. But as of a couple of years ago, the Democrats kind of, you know, in 2018 and especially in 20, you know, 2018, they took the other House seat. 2020, they took the Senate seat. Now it's a straight blue district. You know, just in time for redistricting for them to probably lose, you know, some, maybe lose some of those seats. Well, there we are. I think four districts. Well, we won't. We'll omit the fifth. I, you were kind of weak in your in your uh, uh, characterization <laughs> yeah, of dep- that, depending on which metric you look at. Yeah, yeah, and and certainly not for this year. I think you no, agree. No, this is not. definitely the other one. Okay, so basically, Democrats would have to run the table on anything remotely close, and this doesn't look like the year. We'll be back with Jeremy Duda after the break in the think tank. The Think Tank, KTAR News on 92.3 FM and KTAR.com. We're back here with Jeremy Duda of the Arizona Mirror, the most careful watcher of the redistricting process of any observer out there. We've talked about the Arizona State Legislature. Uh, Now we're going to talk about congressional redistricting. Uh, Even though we stayed at nine seats, a story all by itself that surprised everybody, Uh, frankly, the undercount cost us an extra seat there most likely uh, um on my side i think no doubt but uh uh the uh but anyway that's done we had nine seats we get nine seats but we don't keep the same districts uh and the redistricting commission was prohibited in drawing the district lines from looking at the current <laughs> residents of any uh incumbent uh, though it's interesting uh, that the new districts fell out rather nicely for incumbents, not in terms of where they live, but in terms of uh, districts that seem ideally suited for most. Most incumbents have a very 
comfortable home in a new relatively safe district with an exception. Sure, you can look at the map, and uh, you know, early on, I rather than even looking at the numbers, I started refer- looking at them. It's like, oh, there's the Schweiker district, there's the Lesko district, mm-hmm. there's the Gallego district, and a couple of the districts are pretty much the same. The uh, two heavily, two overwhelmingly Democratic districts, uh, one in uh, kind of south and western Phoenix, one in Tucson and southern Arizona, both heavily Hispanic, both, represented yeah, by both. Hispanic. Both are d- drawn to comply with the Voting Rights Act. Have to be heavily Hispanic. Have to be heavily Democratic. So they're very similar. To uh, Congressman to Ruben Gallego and Raul Grajalva's uh, current districts, they'll be fine. They'll be able to run there as long as they want. Which had to be heavily Hispanic, which meant they'd be heavily Democratic, which, by the way, by l- rules of arithmetic, tended to favor Republicans in the rest of the state because our states are r- states roughly equally R and D. And when you pack in two heavily Democratic districts, you assume you create an almost inevitable situation where most of the rest are going to be Republican. Sure. And this is something that I think a lot of Democrats did not take into account on either map is that because you have these Voting Rights Act districts and you have to pack, make them, basically make them bulletproof for mm-hmm. Latino Democrats or in uh, one legislative mm-hmm. district, Native American Democrats, that leaves you – a lot less Democrats in the rest of the map. You know, uh, Erica Newberg, who is the independent chair of the commission, made a comment about uh, how she did the math. And once you take out the two uh, Dem- the Voting Rights Act districts on the congressional map, if you made every other district equal in terms of partisan lean, every, every, one of them, <laughs> every one of them would be like 6.4 percent Republican. Yeah. And uh, and this is not higher math. This is arithmetic. Yeah, a, lot you got, of, a lot of people didn't want to acknowledge on the Democratic side. You got red, side, uh, no. red marbles and blue marbles, and when you pack two districts with a lot of blue marbles, the rest of them are going to have tend to have more red. All right, we've got five out of the current nine uh, uh, Congress people are Democrats. The Democrats overperformed a bit to get there. I think we're in agreement, if our off-the-record kind of discussion holds, that the new districts look about six-three Republican. That is, if I if I if I were a betting man, and I am, if I had to put some money on this, that's what I would probably be looking at here. You have two Democratic-held seats right now; um, they're very much in jeopardy mm-hmm. for for them. Uh, one is. Uh, you know, Southern Arizona, Tucson, which is a very competitive district, but you have it's open now because Ann Kirkpatrick's uh, retiring. Oh, any you know, it's competitive Republican leaning. This was a major battleground, uh, major fight, and one of the last days of the commission's work. Um, you know, the Republicans definitely have their eye on that. It's Republican leaning, competitive in what will most likely be a very Republican year. The other is nor- mostly Northern Arizona. Tom O'Halloran, kind of a modern de- moderate Democrat, former moderate Republican in the legislature, turned independent, turned Democrat. Mm-hmm. Running for re-election, but his district, unfortunately for him, has gotten you know I'd say you know significantly more Republican because of the way they drew the line. Because, but let's let's back off of the individuals right now and talk if if you would. Let's take our nine districts. Let's talk about the ones you'd call safe Republican. Where uh, are they and who? Uh, safe Republican, you know, one in the East Valley. Um, I forget the number, but it doesn't really matter. But uh, East Mesa, Gilbert. Five, it's five. I'm looking five, at the map. With, yeah, five. Yeah. Which I believe is five on the old map. That's but, um, the Biggs. District. That's Andy Biggs, and uh, he will have absolutely no trouble, um, you know, running for re-election, to the point where like we might not bother to learn the name of the Democrat who runs in well, that district. You know, there is uh, there is a discussion between the Democrats and the independent candidate about keeping a Democrat from running in that race I hadn't to heard present that. a uh, conservative independent alternative to him. 
I had not heard and, that, but uh, yeah. I would imagine Andy Biggs is not exceptionally worried about his reelection yeah. this year. It, it, it's certainly a safe Republican, safe Republican seat. Uh, uh, let's let's start with that northwest corner of the state. I I think that's that's another safe one. Oh yes, that would be the new uh, District Nine, which is. Uh, Kind of similar to the district Trent, Trent Franks represented from 2002 to 2010, mm-hmm. that um, it's much of it, the, the bulk of the population, I believe, actually, the majority is probably in the West Valley. Uh, but if you look at it on the a land map, ma- yeah, if you look at it on a map, it st- stands out as being you know kind of dominated by rural northwestern Arizona, Mojave County, La Paz mm-hmm. County, kind of the northern part of Yuma County. And that is technically there is no incumbent living there but we will definitely we will have our incumbent running there paul gosar has already uh, stated his intention to run there now this will be interesting because this will be the second uh, redistricting cycle in a row the second decade in a row where paul gosar is switching to a district where he is, does not live to get away from a competitive or marginally competitive district uh, but it does seem a district that's sort of tailor-made for him even oh, though he doesn't live. oh absolutely is overwhelmingly re- republican again we will we will not really bother to, to pay, learn the name of the democrat running there you know, 10 years ago, he got elected to the district that included both Flagstaff and Prescott, which was competitive. Uh, Prescott got carved out uh, in the last redistricting. So he said, even though he lived in Flagstaff, he said, well, I'm going to kind of, you know, move my residence to Prescott and live there. He never did, I don't think, but it doesn't really matter. Now Prescott and Flagstaff are both in the same district, which is not really competitive, but not overwhelmingly Republican. So he's moving on over to uh, Mojave County, West Valley, and that, that, that's, that's, that's his crowd. Debbie Lesko seems to have a district with her name on it as well. Sure, her district is, uh, I, th- I think, in a lot of ways, very similar to the district she represents now. You know, part, part of you know, a lot of the uh, kind of Northwest Valley, uh, Northern North Valley area, very you know Peoria, you know, her home base, and I think it concludes all of Peoria. Very mm-hmm. you know, pretty similar to what she represents now. Very safely Republican, nothing for her to worry about. Last incumbent Republican Schweikert. Schweikert's district definitely got worse for him. Now, that almost certainly will not matter this year, maybe next year. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, you know, one of the two real you know gen- competitive districts on the map. Um, whether, like, again, you know, this is not a year when a Democrat who really think, who uh, is going to stick their neck out and try to run against him. Greg Stanton technically lives in that district and will most certainly, most, almost definitely not be running there. But, you know, throughout the decade, later on in the course of the decade, this could become a major battleground in future elections. And in, in any year, that's not going to be a Republican way. So four incumbent Republicans, all of them all have safe homes in the new maps. Most likely. You know, again, Schweikert's is the only marginal district. But in this year, he would most certainly have nothing to worry about. And that, and that district is like kind of North Central Phoenix, Scottsdale, Fountain Hills, all of that area. Now, and I'll put these for in the interest of time, put these in the same category there on the other side. There's two Hispanic Democrats who also look like they have safe homes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Ruben Gallego, Rogoff, the districts are pretty much exactly, you know, very similar to what they were before. And again, protected by the Voting Rights Act. If you don't draw them very safe for a Latino Democrat, you're going to get sued and you're probably going to lose. OK, so that's six district. We've given we've given away four, four to Republicans, two to uh, Democrats. I think we would agree there's a district that is most likely to flip. Um, yeah, I mean that's certainly going to be O'Halloran's district. And, he is. Um, a, he's. It's. It's more or less the northeast quadrant. But we went. I think he was in a roughly five percent Republican district. Now it's sixteen. Um, I mean. 
depending on which metric you yeah, use. Yeah, depending on which metric you use. And, you know, that's you know, a very competitive district over the past decade. The Democrats have won every congressional race there, but the Republicans have won two of three presidential races mm-hmm. there. You know, Romney won in that won that district in 2012. Trump won it in 2016. Biden won it in 2020. But that district's gotten more Republican, and that is, you know, definitely bad news for O'Halloran. Does he have a prayer? Uh, it's not looking good for him. I think his best chance was for his opponent to be Gosar, who might be too far out there for more moderate uh, voters who lean Republican. Mm-hmm. Gosar, which is probably the reason Gosar is moving over into uh, the He's neighboring district. He's moving into a, a, a district yeah. where it's it's so overwhelmingly Republican that it's a no-brainer. Sure, and I could see some additional Republican candidates jumping into that race. I'm not I'm not mm-hmm. convinced that the field is set there. I think there were people waiting to see what the final lines looked All like right. to make sure. That didn't get more competitive. So safe Republican, not 100 percent certain for Gosar. And it's kind of the same observation I made earlier about Biggs. Sure. Safe, safe. The party distribution is clear. Yeah. The seat may be a little. Yeah, it's not it's not nearly as solidly Republican as Biggs's new district, but, you know, fairly solidly Republican, just barely outside of the range that the redistricting commission considers competitive based on the one metric that they were using. Okay, the Stanton district. Now, it's not his current district. Yeah. Okay? He's, he's, he's going to have to move for this one, but mm-hmm. we're talking about an area that includes Ahwatukee, Tempe, and the southern West, part of Scottsdale. West Mesa, yeah. southern Scott, you know, um, parts of Chandler. Yeah, that's um, we'll call it the Stanton district with an asterisk because, of course, he doesn't actually live there. It's where he lived when he began his political it's career. It's the one that looks like it's tailor-made for I mean— all these, a lot of these guys are in, are going to have to move to go it. But if you you look at the map and you, and you, you I mean, we I think we looked at the same map. We said that's a Stanton district, that's the Biggs district. Sure, not sure. meaning they live there, but said yeah. that's that's tailor made yeah. for. Of course, them. these are these are congressional districts where you do not actually have to live in your district, yes. which which will help a lot a number of these folks. But so yeah, that's how uh, difficult for him. Um, I mean, more difficult than it would be in other years because um, this this is kind of – it's about as Democratic as O'Halloran's district is Republican, maybe slightly less. Mm-hmm. Now, and I think in a year like this where the Republicans are expected to run the table, there are Republicans who certainly believe that's winnable for them. Stanton, of course, is a kind of a seasoned incumbent now, well-known in the area. A lot of that area is part of his current district, mm-hmm. certainly, you know, Ahwatukee, Tempe. A lot of that stuff, you know, in his current got only district. a sliver, Awatuki. For a former mayor of Phoenix, the only yeah. piece of Phoenix he has left yeah. in a district is Awatuki. Sure. Which, which, which is where he lived when he first began his career on the Phoenix mm-hmm. Phoenix City Council. Should be done. Now he lives more in, like, north-central Phoenix. But Okay, last district, which is six, in the southeastern uh, corner of the state, uh, kind of the Ann Kirkpatrick district, though it's yeah, very p- different. P- p- pretty similar to the Ann Kirkpatrick district, um, I would say. Looks like it's a lot more Republican. I don't know. Hard to say. That that is that's probably been the most competitive district, the old district, over the past decade. It's really the only one that's changed hands a couple multiple. Only one that's changed hands between parties multiple times, um, and it's the only open seat where you won't have any incumbents running this mm-hmm. year. Presuming you know everyone run ever, everyone else runs where we expect them to run because Kirkpatrick's retiring, and um, that is going to be you know a major major battleground. That is Republican leaning, but pretty competitive. That was. Um, on the second to last day of the commission's work, when they finished the congressional map, that was one of the Democratic commissioners put her foot down at the beginning of the day. And they spent the entire day arguing pretty much about exactly where the line is going to be in the middle of Tucson, how much of like the area surrounding U- the University of Arizona goes into Grijalva's district where you know the Democrats don't need to pack in more Democrats because mm-hmm. they'll never lose it, and how many they could – 
move into the other district without the Republicans blowing a gasket and basically getting the independent chair to agree to that. It got marginal a little bit better for the Democrats based on uh, that showdown. Um, still Republican-leaning, but definitely within the range of competitiveness. We'll be back with Jeremy Duda in a minute. In a minute, when we come back, I want to ask him of all these races, which which ones are the ones to watch? Are, is there going to be any drama in in November when we return with Jeremy Duda in the think tank in just a moment? The Think Tank, KTAR News on 92.3 FM and KTAR.com. We're back with Jeremy Duda talking redistricting and the impact. We've been talking about the congressional races. So what are we left with? Tell me what races you would watch to have any potential drama at all in terms of outcome in November. I mean, on the congressional side, the most interesting race will undoubtedly be, almost undoubtedly be District 6, Southern Arizona, kind of northern open, and eastern Tucson. Open right the, the open seat currently represented by Ann Kirkpatrick, who is retiring. Mm-hmm. You know, that's eastern, northern Tucson areas plus, you know, Cochise County and kind of going up along, you know, the I-10 corridor all the way up to Casa Grande, you know. Competitive, Republican-leaning, you know, big pickup opportunity for the GOP as they're looking to t- retake control of the House of Representatives. On the Democratic side, you have two uh, state legislators, or in one case, one of the former state legislators, one of the many resignations that we uh, referenced mm-hmm. earlier in the show, Kirsten Engel, and then Daniel Hernandez, who's in the House of Rep- State House of Representatives. Those are the two candidates vying for the Democratic uh, nomination. On the Republican side, you have uh, Juan Siscomani, who's a Ducey, Doug Ducey staffer, kind of the establishment Republican, Chamber of Commerce type. You have uh, a couple of other more conservative Republicans, uh, Eli Crane, uh, Kathleen Wynne. I think maybe maybe some others, uh, you know, we could potentially see another entry into the race. Who knows? Probably not a major candidate, though. But that is going to be a major battleground. You're going to see millions of dollars spent from the national parties here. Uh, that's going to if you live in southern Arizona, that is you're going you're not going to be able to turn on the t- turn on the TV without seeing, you know, six ads every break for, you know, those for the candidates in that race. Uh, I. Two incumbent Democrats, Stanton and O'Halloran. I think what I heard was O'Halloran's in more difficulty than Stanton. Oh, definitely. That's going to be that's the other you know major pickup opportunity for the GOP on this congressional map in Arizona. Now that the district has shifted to become more Republican than it's been for the past couple of decades, you're going to see a major push by the GOP by national groups to really uh, to really um. For that district, and, and like I said, I'm not entirely sure we've seen that the that the Republican field there is finalized. I think we could see some folks get in, although, although the clock is ticking to collect signatures mm-hmm. to get on the ballot there. Big big prediction question for you. I think we agreed that the most likely outcome of the congressional delegation is six to three Republican compared to five to four current Democratic lead. Question is this: If we're wrong and it's not six three, is it more likely to be seven two or five four? I'm going with seven two. Maybe in a year like the, I mean, the way things are shaping up, you know, you hear a Republican consultant saying they've never seen polling numbers, you know, this good for them at that at this point in an in a off year election cycle. So a district like Stanton's, the Republicans do have an outside shot at winning that. I think. I mean, it's not great, but it's mm-hmm. definitely there, and we'll have to see how you know. Who the, how, how big a disaster yeah. it is. Who, who, the, who yeah. the Republican nominee is, what the numbers look like in a few months, and then that'll kind of determine how much these national groups are really willing to uh, – the, the Republican groups are, are really willing to Are they looking at a district that is winnable enough that it will get a top-tier candidate? Exactly. Are they going to have a, you know, a good a, a candidate they feel like they can get behind who's worth spending the millions of dollars that uh, this race will take? Because I'm sure the Democrats will be very keen on – 
protecting Stanton, especially if it looks like O'Halloran or the Kirkpatrick district get out of reach. They might shift mm-hmm. their resources there to yeah. make sure that they don't lose Stanton. And interestingly for the Republicans is that would not be – the competitive Republican in that race would not be a Donald Trump candidate. It would be somebody from the Republican establishment. No. you No. The, the only type of Republican who's likely to win in a district like that, even in a year like this, is going to be – you know, more establishment, chamber of commerce type Republican, not definitely not someone from kind of the more MAGA wing uh, of the party. So harder for them to get through a Republican primary. Yeah, although, although that's another district where we could see, you know, new entrants into onto the Republican side, especially I think that was probably the one of the most uncertain in terms of what it was going to look like. Okay, in the legislature, what else would, would you uh, want to look at? Well, well potentially one of the most interesting matchup we'll see, and I'm going to put a big asterisk next to this one because it could change, is District 7. This is a rural Republican district that stretches from kind of the southern part of Flagstaff all the way down through uh, you know, a lot of Gila County and a uh, little into Pinal County and takes, taking in Apache Junction in the, uh, the eastern end of the valley. Now, there are two incumbents who live here now, and this is the legislature, so mm-hmm. you have to run in the district where you live. And very both very right-wing MAGA Republicans, Kelly Townsend, uh, Wendy Rogers. Now, this will be this could be a pretty wild primary, but uh, Kelly Townsend, I believe, has filed to run in the Southern Arizona district, the uh, d- uh, District Six, the Kirkpatrick district, where she does not live. But again, you don't have to live there. So if she runs there, that will uh, kind of take that matchup off the table and leave Rogers, you know, alone to you know cruise to reelection. I believe she just announced this morning that she'd raised two and a half million dollars for her reelection, which would be far and away a record for any kind of legislative race. So I could see why Townsend might be kind of wary of uh, running against her. There's also three uh, House Republicans in that district who are going to have to compete for two seats. One other on the Democratic side. In, uh, now, are you talking about her running for Congress? Yeah. Okay, because yeah. I said that's con- sorry, sorry, congressional yeah. money. I I was hearing that amount of money in the legislature. No, no, no. Wendy Rogers has that for her legislative race, right? And that right. is, yeah, that is just like unheard of. Um, so, who else is making noises in the new congressional southeastern district six? Um, I have outside of Townsend. Uh, I haven't heard mm-hmm. any other new names lately, but. Uh, you know, we shall. We'll, we'll have to see, especially since that, that looks like something where the Republican nominee is probably most likely going to be the next, re- the first representative from that district. Uh, one other potential uh, interesting legislative matchup we have a moment is a uh, Central Phoenix, the new District Five, um, heavily Democratic. You have four incumbent House Democrats drawn into one district, and they're going to have to compete for those two seats. Plus, I think there's a, some non-incumbents running as well. well. Uh, only one senator, but uh, you know it's uh, Leela Alston, who's uh, been there forever, very well. I've never figured Democrats. out how she could be there so long with term limits. I've been, I've lived here forty years, and it feels like she's been in the legislature since I got here. Well, she was there from like the mid seventies until the early nineties, yeah. then was out for almost twenty years, then okay. back in the House, and then switched right. to the Senate. You know the way these legislative term limits go. You know people switch back and forth between the House and Senate, and yeah, know, the term but, when when you can do that, the term limits don't really mean a heck of a lot. That, to me, was, yeah, the ultimate loophole on term limits. They should have maybe made it a longer period, but said that House and the Senate from the same district should be treated like the same office <laughs> if you were, well, if you wanted term limits. Though I I personally always favored the proposal that you have term limits in non-competitive districts only. <laughs> if you can win re-election in a highly competitive district forever, more power to you. But if you're in a district that you get elected because you have the, the right letter after your name and nothing more forever, then 
then it seems to me that's that's when term limits make some sense. So, what else? What else? What else would we look? We got about thirty seconds here. So. Um, so some of the competitive districts see who uh, kind of emerges as the challengers, especially you know you have some incumbent Democrats who are going to be on the ropes. Um, what district you have a two? You have Nancy Bartow, Republican senator, and Christine Marsh, Democratic senator, drawn in together. That, that's a that's, that's a gonna, that's, huge. That should yeah. be a pretty big matchup that, in the yeah. general election. And ideological divide. Very very yeah. yeah very big ide- ideological divide there. Well, that will be that'll be worth watching. Thank you very much, Jeremy Duda. We appreciated having you here. We'll be back next week with another topic in the think tank. If you want to reach me, the website is mikeoneal.org. You can. Uh, Get that for uh, to reach me as well. And uh, Jeremy Duda is at AZ Mirror. Thanks for having me.